dig this. First 125, Moro here from Grundle. Kingsley turns that five sideways. Brian, the gate is down. This is a sharp left-hander. Who's going to shot? Looks like Darcy Lange on that Richmond Gallon. Kawasaki gets the jump. That's where it all started. Big MX Radio, brought to you by Meta, is on the air. Fueled by passion, focused on motocross. Fly Racing, Bills Pipes, W Wheels, Motul MX, X-Brand Goggles, Moto Ice Wrap, and Moto Stuff make it possible to bring you the news, the interviews, and the point of views inside the sport of motocross. The gate's about to drop on Big MX Radio. Welcome to the Arma Energy Drink Big MX Radio Podcast Show brought to you by Meta. I am your host, Brad Gebhardt. With us on the line, we've got none other than Ryan Clark. Ryan, how's it going? Uh, going very well. Just enjoying my the continuation of my week off from regular work and, and just doing house chores and honeydews. So. Honeydews and, and house chores and occasionally this Canadian kid keeps calling me and asking about my motocross career. I don't quite understand it. Right, right. Well, you know, um, a lot of it. I have a lot of personal interest in Canada. Like uh, some of my favorite artists are from Canada, my favorite musicians. So, you know, it's kind of a, I guess it's a good fit. So and my who only who might those artists be? What's that? I said, who might those artists be? Please don't say Nickelback. Uh, no, like Dallas Green, City in Color, you know, oh, yeah. like Alexis on Fire. Um, definitely not like Bieber or anything like that, you know, or no. Celine Dion. But We don't we'll like take, him either. We'll take the South Park people. We'll take, you know, we'll take all those. So, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Jim Carrey. Uh, absolutely. And Brian I Adams. totally missed that you actually made a <laughs> uh, a reference to one of my favorite movies. I'm not sure if you you even knew you were making it when you said uh, um, uh, "Hell hath no fury like the scorn for, uh, like a woman scorned for Sega," which is a a, a term for as a, a line from uh, my favorite movie, Mallrats. Mallrats is is epic for sure. I love Jason <laughs> Lee. So. Yes, sir. Um, inventor of the 360 kickflip, by the way. Right, yeah, he was like a badass skater, and yeah, you know, I, he actually had green. a yeah, he had a signature series of shoes um, at one point, which was like a really cool shoe, kind of like a kind of like a Chuck, but like yeah. chunkier. It was called, I think, the name of the brand was Decline, which apparently it well, did decline because they don't have them anymore. But yeah, I'm holding on to that one pair of Jason Lee signature shoes. No doubt. Well, um, I wanted to call you back up uh, another time this week, uh, mainly because, A, I really enjoy speaking with you. I think you got a, a ton of great stories. And uh, in, in all honesty, the hour that we uh, we spent, we uh, we chatted, we uncovered a lot of great stuff, but I feel like there's there's a to- whole lot more in there. So I had to call you up, and I had a couple more things on, on my mind. Could, uh, could you field those questions for me? Absolutely. Um, so... Uh, before we get into the team solitaire stuff, because uh, that could possibly be a series or maybe even an epic long like uh, um, Lord of the Rings style um, thing of, of, of podcast. But uh, what I would actually like to know a little bit more of is uh, your days uh, ripping around 
Um, New Mexico with uh, with the Tedesco brothers, uh, even guys like uh, I don't know. I guess you'd be a little bit older than uh, uh, Justin Buckaloo, but uh, those, all those guys were in the mix. Right. It was really it was kind of an anomaly. Like we had this core group of seven or eight guys. Um, we had Johnson's sort of like the predecessors of it that didn't quite make it were uh, a guy named Sean Morga. Um, and then a guy named Robbie Claus, who both had some some success at like amateur level stuff, but just had injuries and other you know issues that kind of uh, inhibited their growth beyond that. So we had these like two kind of fast guys that we were always looked up to, and then there was uh, you know the group of of the Johnsons, which it's like you know Isaiah, Keith, Kevin, or cousins. Justin Bucklew is a cousin. Um, Zach White is related. Uh, Aaron Johnson. So Zach White still wor- works with Mitch Payton now. He, all these guys like Aaron and and Zach at one point were mechanics on you know Team Solitaire, um, and uh, so that was cool to see them kind of go on. Aaron Johnson's now with RCH. He was with Mitch for a long time as uh, I think his engine engine development guy. So. Um, yeah. Pretty cool to see even the guys that didn't go on to make it racing have actually, you know, parlayed it into a, an industry, you know, a career in the industry. Um, but, yeah, we, we had, like, just, you know, our little inner circle rivalries, if you will. Yeah. So Isaiah Johnson and myself were, like, competitive to the, to the end. Um, you know, we'd always be vying for, like, the fastest guy in the group. Um, and then Keith Johnson and Gio Tedesco were kind of the next two guys, and they were battling each other. And then Ivan Tedesco and Justin Bacalou were right there as well. So, and then kind of Kevin Johnson was always like bringing up the the rear, but he was the craziest of all of us, and he would like jump anything, and then you know, unfortunately, get hurt a lot. But um, all of us, you know, had some success. You know, I, Ivan probably the most success, Justin Buckley had a race win. I had a really long career. You know, Isaiah had some, some success there as well as Keith. So it was, uh, it's kind of cool that from such a very small group of people, like there, there's not a lot of racing. There was maybe two tracks in New Mexico growing up that we yeah. could ride at, uh, or race at, but, uh, you know, we still created this pretty large presence. Um, and then obviously now Jason Anderson is, just a, a bona fide badass, and he's holding yeah. it up, you know, for the five hundred five. Uh, see him growing up at all, though? No, he, I heard of him, you know, growing up, and I met him a few times. But I was already here in Arizona. I think yeah. by the time he kind of really started to, you know, make have a presence, so I wasn't really racing lo- locally anymore. Um, yeah. I just, I mean, I, I enjoyed racing, but it's, it's one of those things where when you go to a, a local track and you've got like the local hot shoe guy that's really fast there and, you know, his number one priority is to beat you and tell all his buddies he beat you and you're going there like not really caring. It didn't, you know, it wasn't a great uh, recipe for for good good things to happen. So I just, towards the, I guess once I was making enough money to that I didn't have to do those little races anymore. I, I started to forego them and just focus on nationals and supercross, and that's plenty. I mean, 30 summer races a year. So, 
Exactly. No, and uh, a busy schedule and a taxing schedule. And and, uh, on top of that, um, I got to imagine you were the kind of guy that also uh, indulged in the the, the European Supercrosses, am I wrong? Yeah, I did a lot of that. And those were a lot of the best, you know, like most memorable experiences that I've I've had. Um, I mean, the times that we went over for the big races when the, you know, when the FIM World Supercross Series happened and we went to Spain for that just ridiculously muddy, probably the muddiest, muddiest supercross I've ever, ever been in. Maybe the muddiest race I've ever been in. Um, Those were great, but the ones where you just, sort of show up and you don't know what's going to happen. Like, you know, you talk to some guy that barely speaks English and he's like, yeah, I'll meet you. I'll pick you up at the airport. So you show up at the airport and you've got like your gear bag and your suspension and you're, you don't know anybody and you're just kind of roaming around looking for someone that is like looking for a really out of place person. Right. Yeah. You know, and so you see them and you know, they again, barely speak English or, or speak no English at all. And, you just go with them and you're like, man, is this like the start of hostile or, you know, <laughs> am I going to end up, you know, dead? And, uh, but I mean, lo and behold, I, I've, I've been all over the world. Um, and I've just had nothing but positive experiences everywhere that I've been from like Athens, Greece, where they told me, you know, you don't want to walk outside. You don't want to go down, um, you know, by yourself walking through the city and, I mean, I did. I just, um, I always had like a really positive outlook and I always tried to meet as many people as I could and ask questions about the culture and learn a little bit of the language if I could. And, um, and overwhelmingly just great experiences. And probably looking back, the thing, the one thing about my career that I'm, I bring with me, you know, and I have the, the fondest memories of is just traveling to Europe and getting to know a lot of, uh, a lot of people over there and experiencing different cultures. It gives you, you know, I mean, you hear a lot of people, especially, I guess I don't want to, I don't want to sound too uh, judgmental or anything, but a lot of people that live here in the United States are like, Oh yeah, that, you know, the United States is the greatest country in the world. And, you know, F all these other people and blah, 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 their cultures. And it's like, man, if you don't know their culture and you haven't experienced it and you haven't traveled, you don't have the right to, to make judgment on it. So I feel fortunate that I was, I was able to travel to a lot of countries that, you know, I probably would have had a negative um, feeling about had I not become immersed in it and met the people and really saw that, you know, I mean, people do love Americans. Like they say they hate us. Oh, they just hate the arrogant asshole Americans that pound their chest and, you know, look down upon their culture. They don't, they, they just, so, I mean, that's, that was my experience anyway. Totally. And, uh, uh, among, uh, the, the competitors that you, uh, lined up against, uh, overseas, uh, all over the world, um, there was probably one common guy whose, uh, career pretty much, um, I'd say, uh, it's not actually, a, it's, a, it's about a mirror image of your own, um, uh, Jason Thomas, a guy that you guaranteed either, uh, were, uh, were buddies with, we're not buddies with banging bars, um, going after championships, and uh, and and probably uh, had some uh, LCQ takeouts uh, uh, between the two of you over the course of uh, oh the good better part of uh, thirteen years. 
Yeah, we always did end up together, whether it was like, you know, some obscure race in, in Greece or Germany or Holland or, you know, all over the globe. And then, of course, inevitably back here, we were very similar in pace, I would say. Yeah. Early right on, I, I had him covered, and then he definitely made some steps, and um, we battled back and forth, and then he had me covered for a while. And so I think, um, I mean, definitely wasn't really great friends with Jason. I mean, nothing against him. We're just different people, um, you know, different priorities and whatnot. But uh, we always had a lot of fun, you know, battling with him and and pissing him off sometimes and him pissing me right back off. It just, you know, the c- competition, that competitive element of it, that's what we all crave and that's why we all do it. And um, Jason's a really smart guy um, and he made a good career, you know, and again, he got out of it on his own terms, which is, which is awesome. And, you know, not due to injury or, or anything like that. So he was able to, you know, to take that and, and move into a spot with fly Western power sports. Um, but yeah, he and I had had some really good times, and um, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine, Danny Nappy, who I shared a good, you know, a good part of my career. He was he was a, a good friend of mine, and traveled to all the races that he could. And we always kind of bench race about you know these old stories. He's got some interesting ones from back in the day when you know he was like hanging out with Gene Newmack and and Davy Coombs and and going you know Florida road trips and whatnot from his from his place up in upstate New York, but. I was telling him about uh, the very first time I went to, to uh, Europe. I think I was maybe 19 or 20. Um, and I might have touched on this on the last last time, but the one thing that really stuck out in my mind was how different, you know, different the culture was. Over here, we were just, you know, all the racers were so serious. And, and you know, you got like the Chad Reeds wearing the, yeah. you know, taping, taping uh, beads to them and, and harnessing their chi. And, you know, you got all these all these really serious guys and it was just a striking, um, you know, uh, contrast contrast when I was over there and I roll up to the line at Germany at, uh, I think it was Stuttgart, the opening round of the German ADAC series. And, you know, I'm pushing my bike to the line and there's a, there's a guy in full gear minus his helmet, smoking a cigarette, walking up to the line. And I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. Like, and then I think the guy might've gone out and beat me, you know, <laughs> so it, was, it was just this, this realization that, wow, you know, I mean, there's just, there's so many different, different people and different, uh, different mindsets, you know, all, all over, all over the world. And, you know, within your own country, obviously as well. But, uh, it was, uh, one thing that, that I really, that I'll really kind of remember as a, um, you know, a very vivid memory. Well, as much as we like to uh, boil this down to a science that it's uh, that we can be one or two clicks off of being able to uh, um, get get that magic setting or get that uh, those lap times to drop. Sometimes it's it's just uh, it it still comes down to a guy on a dirt bike with a throttle and a set of brakes, and some like some guys can just make it work. Like you said, uh, it's like cigarette in the mouth. I remember, like I know there are times. Actually, I've had him on my show, uh, Mike Healy, uh, talking about a uh, 
a national that he raced, I believe, in 1994, showed up on a beat practice bike, uh, beer cans falling out of the, the doors um, uh, from the night before. Uh, wasn't the, the AMA wasn't even going to let him race because he wasn't in shape to do so. They said He said, let me race. They let him race, and he won the second moto. Like, yeah. And you have other guys who uh, hyperbaric chamber the night before, and they're uh, they're eating paleo and uh, make sure that they have their uh, their their Isoflex uh, drinks uh, ready to go ten minutes before the race. It's all down to the last minute, and some guy that that just just down to six pack uh, out, out front of you. Right, and it's maddening, you know. Um, as <laughs> one is. of the as one of those people that had to have my program just right, and then, you know, like Mike Healy is a prime example, and like a say a Josh Demuth. I don't know if you are familiar with Josh at all, but he's a guy that I traveled with when I was, um, you know, younger. We we'd end up inevitably at the fair races and um, Lake County and Washington County Fair, and we're all trying to pat our pockets in between the nationals racing on like you know, Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights. And, and Josh was, I mean, at one point just, just out of control. I mean, super nice guy, great heart, but you know, I mean, drinking heavily and hanging out with, you know, girls till all hours of the night. And then he'd show up hung over to Mount Morris and he got third in a moto. And I'm just like, I, I swear to God, he woke up drunk in a lounge chair that morning in the in the pouring rain and he got third and i think i got like 23rd and you know during the week i'm running and riding and he's just being josh but i think what it boiled down to is if you believe in your program if if you don't doubt it it's not so much like the physical part of it you know i mean josh rode a lot and so he had you know pretty good stamina to start with but like it didn't, he wasn't like me. He didn't overthink it. I overthink everything. You know, I'm up at the line thinking about, oh, you know, how much water did I drink yesterday? And, and, you know, what did I eat last night and how much sleep did I get? And he's just like, you know what, let's go race. F it. We're just going for it. And, and some guys can do that and get away with it. And I sure wish I was one of them, but I couldn't. So. Well, they do say uh, ignorance is bliss. What's that? They say ignorance is bliss. Right? For me right now, ignore, ignoring is bliss. I just <laughs> I changed the thing a little bit. But. There you go. Um, but uh, so you were the kind of guy that uh, were willing to race anywhere, anytime, uh, racing these fair races, and uh, including uh, in the early 2000s, they allowed guys to double class it in Supercross. And uh, more often than not, you uh, you. you like uh, answered the bell on that one, making many mains, both uh, 125 and 250. What's uh, what's a day like uh, riding? Uh, and this was back when uh, like the Supercross is a little bit longer of a day or a program. I think you guys were able to ride on Thursday as well, Friday, and then uh, race on uh, the race qualifiers on uh, on the uh, on the Saturday to get into the night show. But so it was, it was a bit of a more of a stretched out program. But at the same time. Two different motorcycles, uh, two different classes, and uh, two different main events. I got to imagine at some point at the during the two fifth two fifty main, you're uh, you're mailing it in. Right. Well, I mean, it was more of like for me, I would I would just strategize it, and I would kind of see which one I was better at. I guess that 
that particular night. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I could always qualify. I mean, I say always, not always, but, you know, unless I had an issue, unless I crashed or had a bike problem, I would always qualify out of the heat in the 125 class. So that was kind of just a no-brainer. I would go race that 100%, um, and then I'd go to the, the 250 heat, and I wouldn't even really try that hard in it because they only qualified top four. At the time, I was, you know, I wasn't a, a, a top 10 level guy when I was doing it. I was like 12th, 13th. So unless I came off the gate really well and I thought I had a chance at it, I would just kind of cruise the, the heat race, uh, get back, and then really put all my effort into the 250 semi because they qualified five. Obviously, the, you know, you take out the guys that made it in the heat, and, and that was yeah. kind of my, that was that my was opportunity. So I would, uh, I would do that, and then uh, I'd be in both, and then I would kind of same thing. I'd go for it really hard at the, the start of the 125 main, and if I was in in great position, you know, within the first few laps, I would I would charge that, and then I would just kind of spend all my energy there. But if you know, I mean, if inevitably something bad happened, like if I got in the first turn pileup or whatever, I would just kind of take it easy and then put more focus on the 250. But really, what it was for me was um, it was more out of necessity. I mean, I was trying to make a living, you know. So just to be in the 250 main was way more money than than even finishing probably fourth in the in the 125 main event. So uh, right. I just needed to make the main in the 250. If I made the main in the 250, but then I tried, you know, I would get more, I would get recognized more having a good finish in 125. So I think the only time that I ever really tried to push hard in both was. I want to say it was Indianapolis, somewhere around oh two oh three, or maybe St. I don't St. know. Louis maybe prior to that, St. Um, Louis oh two, you made both mains. You went seventeen eighteen, uh, and uh, had yourself a pretty decent day. Like seventh in that class, you're ahead of Buddy Antonez, Steve Boniface, uh, Hoffmaster, Dowd, Shane Bass. Oh, he was still racing at that time. Uh, Isaiah Johnson, Kevin Johnson, Ke- uh, Kelly Smith, Larry Ward, Grant uh, uh, Grant Langston. Is that the one that Grant almost won and then fist pumped? Might be. I'm I'm not sure. I think it is. No, no, Chad Reed won it. But yeah, uh, like seventh place in the main event in the t- in the 125 class, and I still call it the 125 class, guys, because that's what it is. Um, and, uh, and then 18th in the, uh, in the 250 main, uh, honestly, if like nowadays, uh, like either one of those results, anyone would be pumped about that. Right. Well, my ultimate goal was to top 10 both classes on the same night. Um, and there was, I, I, it might not have been that one. I know there was one where I was like sixth or seventh in, in 125. And then I was like 11th in 250. So I was so close because I don't think anybody had ever done a double top 10 before. So that was just kind of something I was personally trying to do. I never quite got there, got close, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that was like, honestly, it was, it wasn't anything more than just me, you know, I mean, looking at the fact that I was lean in the, in the pocket, you know, and needed the, needed the funds to continue to, to race. I had to invent a career. I didn't really, you know, I wasn't really fast enough to to have a career independent of, you know, just being creative and trying trying to market myself and trying to 
you know, pick up any little races that I could along the way, especially at, at that point. You know, later on it got a little better, but um, just trying to, you know, trying to do something a lot of people told me I couldn't do, which was make a living right. riding dirt bikes. So. Yeah, well, and uh, at that at the time, uh, 2002, uh, arguably uh, one of the one of the years where uh, you, you put in some of your best rides and some and uh, like re- some really great results there. And uh, all along the way, uh, were you riding a 125 in the in the 250 cl- or the the 125 class or is 250F? Um, no, I only rode a 250F one year in it, I believe. Um, I want to say like. Three, three maybe but yeah i mean i had a couple of like i had a fourth place at houston or maybe the fifth at houston a fourth at dallas and you know had some good rides i just never quite had that breakthrough ride and you know it was it was like my my conditioning was always what was my strong point my speed wasn't really my strong point you know, I had to I had to figure out how to stay with the guys long enough to where they started fading a little bit. And if I was close enough, I could capitalize on it. It's like when I got fourth at Dallas in 99, um, I think I was like ninth with three laps to go. And yeah. and I just started slicing through people. And I, I caught Pingree, you know, with three turns left. And I just hung it out through the whoops to try and get the podium. You know, he was in third. And I, I literally like should have gone for the takeout, you know, in the last turn, I just checked yeah. up and I kicked myself afterward. Like that would have been, you know, a podium possibility or heck maybe I'd have crashed and, and got 10th, but I wish I would have uh, laid it out on the line a little bit, a little bit more that night. But um, yeah, I mean, I always relied on my, on my, you know, physical fitness to, you know, surpass a lot of the guys that like the Steve Boniface, you know, really talented uh, riders that maybe didn't put the effort in quite as much. Well, who who are some of the most frustrating guys in that? So you mentioned uh, Demuth, uh, but uh, who who are some of the other guys that uh, seemingly just didn't put in uh, that kind of um, like the that seemingly not as much effort as you were putting in, but still, uh, um, yeah. You know, I, I mean, there wasn't like a whole bunch of them, but you know, I mean, um, like Roncata is another guy that you kind of—I don't know if it's like a French theme I'm going on here, but yeah, um, you know, some of they them, like hard. obviously, Sebastian Tortelli worked his butt off, and and he, uh, you know, was a real hard trainer. Um, but I mean, n- not a whole bunch of people, but just you know, there was a few of them that could do that and pull it off, but by by that point, I mean, once it just got much more serious, like I had, had mentioned the last time, you know, most everybody was training like crazy. Like I spent some time with Brandon Jessman when I was staying in, uh, in Pennsylvania with San- with Chad Sander, you know, who <laughs> we talked about at Loretta Lynn's there the other day. Um, yeah. and he was just a machine. I mean, literally just a machine. Um, and I had never been around somebody that had put that much effort into training and it, it was pretty eye opening. And then kind of, you know, getting to know uh, Mike and Jeff Alessi, I was staying with Davey Coombs in Morgantown when racer X was just the racer X house. It was literally a house on, on the side of uh, the freeway. And there was a little apartment, a couple of apartments there. And Julie Kramer 
um, was commuting between Pittsburgh and, and Morgantown. So she'd only stay in the apartment, you know, part of the time. So when I was down there, I'd stay in the apartment. Um, and the Alessis were, were there. And so I got a chance to kind of see, see what those guys were, uh, you know, were all about too back then and, and how Look structured the their program. What's that? Yeah. Behind them. Exactly. So, <laughs> but you know, I mean, I always had a really good, you know, a lot of people don't, don't like the Alessis and, you know, obviously they've brought a lot That's of it funny. on themselves with some of the, yeah, yeah. the incidents, but, uh, but they were, I mean, they were really nice kids. I, I did get a little bit, um, yeah, obviously, I think in order to be an elite level guy, you have to be a little bit cocky. You know, you have to have a bit of an attitude and really yeah. kind of have a superiority, a little bit of a, a feeling of superiority. And so Mikey was, I brought him out on Davy's boat uh, out on, on Cheat Lake. And I remember they were just talking like they had no idea who I was. You know, um, I rode with him at Mount Morris one day and, and, you know, Mikey was on a 125. I think he'd just gotten on a 125. And I was riding, I was riding my, I think I was riding my YZ 250. And we were just doing practice, you know, doing a practice moto. And, and I was railing him in like slowly, you know, a second a lap or something like that. And, and afterward, he's like, man, who, who are you? I've never, I mean, is this your home track? And I'm like, oh. no, I'm from, you know, I'm from Albuquerque. I've just, it's like the third time I've ridden this track. And he's like, couldn't believe that I was catching him, you know? And, uh, so I just thought it was kind of funny. He had no idea who I was. So then, you know, the, the next day or whatever, we're out on Cheat Lake and they're tubing and I'm just whipping them around on the back of the inner tube and, you know, they're loving it. And uh, I finally like, you know, went a little too fast and I just sent Mikey like skipping across the lake. <laughs> went great. I, you know, I injured this like prodigy, <laughs> but he, he was loving it. He just swam up to the boat all, all pumped up and ready to do it That's again. Funny. So. Tony's probably looking at you like, you just killed my investment. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Tony wasn't even there. So, I mean, that was oh, probably good, why good. the kids were having so much fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what? I've had, I've had, um, I have had Tony, I've had Mike, I've had Jeff uh, on the show. Um, well spoken. I've sat with, uh, with Mike in, in the holler and just chatted. The guy, like, um, I don't even get when people say, like, oh, he's a little bit different, uh, like, uh, communicating wise. Like, He's just a regular guy. There's a stigma around him, yes, but like a lot of times we treat people based on how the public like think. Like if 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 um if if you think that someone's going to be difficult to talk to, they're gonna be difficult to talk to. If you just go up to them and talk to them like they're a person, like when I went up to uh, to Tony in Vegas two years ago, I said, "Hey Tony, I would love to get you guys on the show." He just he turned to me and said, "Hey, I don't have a lot of time right now." send me an email. They gave me his card and I sent him an email and a week later they were on my show. There was literally nothing, uh, nothing over the top uh, about that. Uh, and it's, they're, they're, they're good people. Uh, they're a little bit different sometimes, but, uh, aren't we all a little bit different? Yeah. You know, I'm Absolutely. 
Um, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, what, what what I need you to do is I need you to go back in time to uh, February 14th, Valentine's Day 2004, and remember whatever you had for breakfast that day because that turned into three weeks in a row uh, of, uh, of uh, top 10 finishes in the, in the 250 East or 125 East and uh, inside the top 15 every round uh, starting from Houston, Minneapolis, and Atlanta. Uh, and it was Minneapolis where you uh, uh, got that uh, that ninth. It was ninth and a twelfth in the uh, in, in in the t- just about did the the double top ten. And uh, fortunately, I was there that day. Were you? Yeah, Minneapolis yes, was, was always a good race for me. I I just liked I don't know that play. You know, I always uh, it's just kind of like Utah was always good for me. I don't know if it was because of elevation or what, but um, what I do remember about that race in particular was I was battling for a podium early in the race in the lights class or in the 125 class and Eric Sorby just cleaned us both out in a corner like four or five laps into the race just uncalled for and I was so pissed because that year was good for me I was riding well and I think I had the potential you know to be on the podium if if I had a good start and I could stay with the guys at the beginning but um yeah yeah I mean I had stretches where where things just kind of came together. And, you know, I mean, I think you get a little confidence in yourself and, you know, I mean, my bikes at that time though, I mean, literally were basically stock, you know, I mean, they're stock with a little bit of work and I mean, I didn't know what testing was, how I didn't, I wasn't changing gearing. I, I was just still pretty clueless. It wasn't, I mean, and that, that's the thing. I just that got to twist the throttle still, harder. <laughs> what's that? I just got to twist the throttle harder. That's why I'm not going fast. Right. It's a, you know, I mean, you, you almost, you need, you know, you need somebody, well, at least I'm good. I, if I needed somebody to, to teach me how to, how to like learn this stuff, you know what I mean? Which is kind of, kind of a little redundant, but I, I just, I didn't grasp the importance of, of bike setup and testing. I, I really did. I thought it was just like, well, I just need to train harder. I just need to ride more. I just need to, you know, but if you're, if your bike's not settling in a rut, and there's there's nothing you can really do physically to yeah. help that. You have to make some bike changes. And so at that point, I was still kind of winging it. And, you know, I think once I got on Team Solitaire, once, you know, I started Team Solitaire and I got some people around me that had a little bit more knowledge, then I started picking it up, you know. And, and um, but still, I mean, one of the things that I look back on it, you know, and, and wish I would have done a little different was I would have invested more in the bike. I would have um, invested more in, you know, the mechanic. Th- those things are really some of the, mo- the most important aspects. If you're, if your program is structured, if you've got, you know, a good base speed to begin with and you physically are, are capable, you know, you, you can't, you can't expect to, to pick up that one or two percent or, that second or two seconds a lap that you need if, if all you're doing is this, you know, this, the, the definition of insanity is repeating the same act over and over again and expecting, expecting different, different results. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, essentially that's what I was doing for a good period of my career. I wasn't really advancing my, my program any, you know, it was just, you know, you're, you're breaking up a little bit. There. So, so, uh, you know, that's kind of what I wanted to bring, you know, and help 
you need to rest and this is you know how you need to structure your diet and I mean until someone shows you I mean it's not like you, there's just a manual that you read like how to be Ryan Dungey you know no I don't even think Ryan Dungey has that manual no I mean if you look at even look at the difference between Ryan Dungey you know two seasons ago until you know now I mean just the difference you can see how much his mindset's changed you know um, well, it's uh, confidence is a, is a, a tricky thing, especially when uh, you're the guy who's had your number your entire career uh, retires out of nowhere. Right, right. So I mean, even uh, like, even even a guy that had Ryan or uh, uh, Roger DeCoster in his corner, you know, arguably the most you know one of the most knowledgeable people about just overall, you know, from a racer standpoint, from a manager standpoint, setting up bikes, doing R and D. But then you get Alden Baker, and that confidence just multiplies. You know, whether it's a placebo effect or if it's whatever you can attribute it to, he just believes. He believes his program's the best, and therefore it has been. So, Is, Was there ever anything in your career where, uh, like, it might have might, – even if it was a complete uh, placebo effect, something that actually did help you out quite a bit or uh, make you uh, kind of peace of mind uh, to uh, to really help you uh, prepare better. And uh, what do and also what do you remember about that um, Minneapolis uh, track? Because uh, that was the first Supercross I ever got to attend. And uh, if you were ninth, that means you were at least a lap down to Stewart. Um, I don't remember much except for the turn that I got taken out in, um, as far as the track, but, uh, um, as far as like something that gave me a placebo effect, I mean, I know there were certain times, yeah, when, you know, I mean, just a boost of confidence, a shot of confidence. Um, I think when I started working with, uh, Seiji, coach Seiji, who's, uh, Andrew Short's trainer, um, that was definitely the first time I had a real structured program aside from like a local gym trainer, you know? So that definitely gave me confidence in the program. And I think as a result, you know, I mean, I think it was a little bit of both. I think physically I was more prepared, but it was interesting and it was a little difficult for me at first because it seemed like I was actually doing less when I was working with them than when I was doing, when I was just working with a trainer. But Really, I was my program was much more complete. There was a much more emphasis on on recovery and and um, you know preparation for the actual race. Just being being at my top, um, you know, hydration wise and and rest and just the whole a whole complete package. So that that was really good. And you know, I think even after I had my first son that was a big motivator for me to go out and, you know, I knew there was, it was more than just for me now. I really had some, someone depending on me. So that was, uh, whether it was, you know, I guess you just, you rise to the occasion when you have to, you know? 
Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Uh, We're going to throw it to commercial right quick here on the Big MX Radio Podcast Show. But when we get back, we're going to dive into Team Solitaire, some of the the hires, the mechanics, and uh, some of the the, the ins and outs uh, of owning a motocross team. We'll be right back uh, on the Big MX Radio Podcast Show brought to you by Spokeskins and Bill's Pipes. Hey, everybody. This is Jimmy Button, former factory supercross rider. You're listening to the Big MX Radio Show. We're going to take it to a commercial, and we'll be right back. If there's one item to be picky about, it's choosing the right helmet. I'm Andrew Short, and I choose the F2 Carbon from Fly Racing. You, too, can wear the exact same helmet I wear, Trey Kennard wears, Jimmy Albertson wears, and many others. The F2 Carbon is a helmet loaded with details that make a huge difference in comfort and safety. Lightweight materials, phenomenal airflow, and a super comfortable, sweat-absorbing liner and generous eye port design to accommodate any goggle choice are just a few. And did I mention how super trick these helmets look? Straight off the shelf and onto the racetrack. If you are looking for one amazing helmet, look no further than the F2 Carbon from Fly Racing. For more information about Fly Helmets and other products from Fly Racing, visit them on the web at flyracing.com. What's wrong, Jeff? I don't know, Jay. Well, you better fuel up with a nutritious breakfast with oats and bran. Oats and bran? I didn't think there was such a thing. That's what I used to think. Now, I start out every morning with a bowl of Amigos. For extreme kids like us. That's what I call fueling for the big ride. Hey kids, start out every morning with a fat bowl. In motocross, everyone wants one common thing. To simply enjoy the ride. Sand, clay, loam, concrete, and everything in between. Riders all want to be able to enjoy their ride. But today is arena cross. Tomorrow is Glen Helen. And Saturday, we're heading to this gnarly sand track. How can we be sure our suspension is always dialed in? For most, employing a full-time practice technician is unrealistic. And even for those who have one, setting suspension is still a chore. Get a measuring tape, scratch a mark on the fender or rear number plate, and attempt some backward math to find 105 millimeters. Does this tape even have millimeters on it? Forget that. Head to Motul. Dot co today and set your sag every time you ride with the Slacker Digital Sag Scale. Let's hear from Johnny Casebeer himself on how this thing works. So uh, really basically you would just uh, stick it on your axle with the magnet, stick the clip on your side plate, basically where the arc of the axle would hit the side plate, and then uh, pull out the retractable cable, hook it to the clip, and turn it on, and then just take the bike off the stand and and take a measurement. It's that easy. Trust tuning your suspension to Johnny Casebeer and Motul MX. Two thousand and fourteen X Brand Goggles is back and better than ever. From the Scatter X, 
Volcano, and Phantom Goggle, X-Brand has the product to make you stand out on race day. The quality of X-Brand products is second to none. Great lenses, incredible frame, and a strap that doesn't wear out. Great tear-offs, zip-off systems, nose guard, and more. Check out eksbrand.com for all of the accessories and pricing. WUSA is your one-stop shop for quality wheel sets in America. All of the best components built for the toughest conditions. Hit up WUSA.com, that's D-U-B-Y-A-U-S-A.com right now, and check out the custom wheel builder selection. Pick your rims, pick your hubs, pick your spokes, even pick your nipples, and see what it's going to look like on your bike. On the website, you'll drool over components like XL and DID rims, Talon and Kite aluminum hubs, Galfer and Brembo brakes, and spokes that take a licking and keep on ticking. The same wheels that you buy are built by the same guys who are building wheels for Ryan Dungey, Jeremy Martin, Chad Reed, and the entire Geico Honda team. And I kid you not, if they are not told whose wheels are whose, they just build amazing product. And I want you guys in a set of W wheels. So do what I did and head to dubyausa.com today. WUSA, all things wheels. What's up, guys? It's time to talk a little bit about Roy Borden Race. He's the performance specialist. Suspension, making a motor work, balancing a bike, or just maintenance. He's got the tools and know-how to make sure that your bike is ready on race day or practice. Roy Borden has strength in years of experience and the best technology and best tools at his disposal. Whether you're getting your forks redone, seals, or a full, full-blown rebuild on your forks or, or shock. Call up Roy Borton today at 204-633-2722. Hey guys, Bill's Pipes is back, and that means the return of legendary performance. Two strokes, check. Four strokes, check. Since 1974, they've been tuning power at its finest for motocross racers, off-road racers, you name it. For you two-stroke lovers, the MX2 Bill's Pipe exhaust system is flat out the right choice to make. Nickel, works, and the brand new cone look is the right system for the job. When it comes to four-strokes, Bill's Pipes brings the RE13 to decimate the field anywhere, anytime. So if you want the same pipe used by Billy Leninovich, Sean Collier, Vicky Golden, and the entire Barn Pros Home Depot Yamaha team, head over to Bill'sPipes.com today. And never settle. Hey, this is Alex Ray. I don't know if, why you're listening to Brad's podcast, but I'll be back on soon. And we're back. Big MX Radio Podcast Show still in line with Ryan Clark talking uh, Team Solitaire. And uh, Ryan, this is a, a, your brainchild. You, you, you mentioned in our last podcast that you named it uh, after uh, the article that, uh, honestly, I grew up uh, reading. Uh, like I started racing in, in the year 2000, and that's right around when you started writing that article to begin with. And uh, every single month, I'd open it up, and uh, I'd listen, I'd read, and I'd, uh, I'd dissect it, and I'd take out 
taking the information. Um, first of all, I, I got to thank you for all those uh, those great articles, man. It really uh, helped motivate me and uh, get got my uh, creative juices flowing. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. You know, after a couple of years of it, it was a little bit difficult to come up with like fresh content, you know, that I hadn't written about before. But you know, inevitably, it's always just like writing about life. I mean, everybody can relate to, you know, that that's something when you're younger, you know, you have, you have problems, you know, like internally you're, you know, conflicted or whatever it is. But when you're young, you don't realize like every other person in the world goes through a similar, you know, similar experiences growing up or, you know, parent problems or sibling problems or you get older money problems and relationship problems and, just all these things we're all trying to navigate. So it was, it was cool to, you know, be able to put, put the pen to paper and, and write those experiences down and then have other people, you know, tell me later on, like, Hey, that story you wrote about whatever it was, you know, that really inspired me to do something or, you know, I can really relate to that. And thanks for writing that. So it, was, it was cool. I, I enjoyed it. I appreciate um, the opportunity that Davy Coombs gave me that because I think without that article, I was just another privateer guy out there, you know, that kind of let me, uh, kind of got me some more exposure and that's, that's without that, I don't think I could have done the team because I just don't think when I made those phone calls, people would be like, who the hell are you? You know? So, yeah, that, that is difficult. And, uh, the, um, uh, we, we talked about it last time on the show, like uh, nowadays probably ha- more th- harder than ever for guys who uh, are unknown, um, like guys like uh, that are that are constantly in the LCQs or the very, very like uh, even further back, uh, maybe not even uh, making uh, like at the, the back half of the, the, the night show or even not even qualifying for night shows. Um, more often than not, uh, the, the television announcers they don't know who these guys are. They don't. They don't know the names. Uh, the, there's times when uh, the, someone will get a whole shot, and you can literally hear someone uh, putting their finger down a page to look for that bike number to say who's in who's in the who's in the lead, and uh, or even even mention any of their sponsors, or maybe they don't even do that. So when those riders call up businesses, uh, hey, uh, I, I I ride Supercross. I I I, like, I haven't made any main events yet, but uh, I'm I'm doing quite well. Like I'm hoping for some support. Um, like it, it's it's tough to force somebody's hand that way. Yeah, if you don't have a following, you know, like you talked about before, like Instagram and social media numbers are really important. And but I mean, I, I look at it both ways. You know, you got to earn it. You know, and and eventually, you know, I did. I mean, I, I earned my way through it, you know, through hard work and perseverance. Uh, and, you know, I didn't make it. Although, you know, in my mind, I didn't make it, which is it's hard for me to explain to someone that looks up and you know at my career um, and and says, you know, oh, that's awesome that you got to live your dream. Well, I I did, but in my mind, I failed um, because my dream was to be. Win a you know championships and to win supercrosses and nationals. I never did that, so in my mind I failed at it. But you know I still appreciate the 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 ride and, and the experience. But I'm not going to ever feel like you know I can look back and go, oh, I accomplished everything I wanted to. I'd say there's very few people that you know because I mean let's face it, we all want to win, right? I mean yeah, fourth place is great. I'm just fourth place. Who's going to beat me? That's not 
<laughs> what I wanted. That was my, my dream. I didn't, you know, daydream in eighth grade, like it's fourth. So, you know, to a certain extent, I feel, you know, I feel like they don't get love, but, you know, if they want to get it and they, they're going to just have to outwork that they're, you know, the guys that are ahead of them. And I tell that to, you know, the writers that I do uh, work with a little bit. It's like, you know, uh, for instance, Zach, at the beginning of this year, you know, I, I don't know if you're with him, but he grew up with, uh, you know, a pretty good program. He's real tight with, uh, with Pro Circuit, and he always had really good bikes as an amateur and a really structured program. Yeah. So going to Slayton Racing, I mean, even though it's a good program, I mean, it's no Pro Circuit Kawasaki, you know? And so he had, you know, access to the best mechanics and the best equipment and all this stuff and the best track. And then so he came out to Arizona and, uh, you know, the track wasn't exactly, it wasn't exactly right. And I kind of looked in, you know, if you're comfortable, I, I get that's fine, but like, you gotta learn to ride the stuff. You gotta learn to ride whatever is in front of you. And so fast forward a couple of weeks after that, both of our guys uh, were just struggling. They were struggling with whoops because the whoops weren't like, you know, quote unquote spec whoops. They were uh, perfect. They weren't bigger in some areas than others. And I, you know, after that, I told them, dude, this is a prime example as to why when the track's not right, you just adapt. You learn to ride whatever it is because you just never know when that that skill, you know, you're gonna need it. And um I think he started to to understand that, you know, after kind of like a real life example of like came in whatever it is, you better figure out how to ride it. You better figure out how to get through it quickly. Because if you can't get through a set of whoops, you can't ride supercross. Yeah. No, yeah, and like the whoops are like, as much as they are very similar. They got guys built like same guys building the tracks just about every weekend. Uh, different material, different uh, soils, and they break down differently. And uh, yeah, like, this is the track, and everyone's got to deal with it. Right, and I mean, unless you're Christian Craig through the whoops, I mean, you're not going to win. You know, I mean, you have to be that level if you want to win the race. You know, Christian and Cooper, I mean, you look at the the only thing that keeps Christian right now in those battles is that he's so good through the whoops. He's not as good as Cooper the rest of the track, but he gets to the whoops yeah. and he pulls two or three bike lengths every time, you know, and that's how he won Phoenix. And that's, you know, that that's a like a that's his uh, his ace in the hole right there. He's he pulls that out and and, um, you know. If if these guys want to be that level, they've got to got to learn. They've got to learn those skills. Whoops are what you know separate a good supercross guy from a great one. So, what was uh, what was your ace in the hole if you ever had one? Uh, on, like, if you were to walk out onto a, a supercross track uh, and say, "There's a feature that uh, that you do better than than anything else," uh, what, what would that be? It, it was whoops. Um, and being a taller guy, you know, that, uh, that obviously helps, but there was a point, you know, and it, it ended, but there was a point in my career where I literally thought I could not crash in the whoops. 
I was like, I can go into the whoops as fast as I want and I will not crash. And it worked for me for quite a while. Um, <laughs> and I mean, that was when I was popping top tens pretty, pretty consistently. Um, I think I got eighth at the opener in like 2004 at Anaheim. And I mean, I remember passing Villeman back through the whoops. Like he passed me through the rhythm section, turned the corner and passed him back through the whoops. And I was like, Dude, that's something to pass Villeman through the whoops because that guy was yeah, Willem you know, through the whoops. That was his bread and butter. That was right. So when it came crashing to an end, literally, was one of the Anaheim's. I want to say maybe Anaheim two. I can't even remember what year. I was on a Yamaha still, so maybe oh, maybe it was oh four. It was just a little bit later on in that season. Um almost whole shot the main. Um, and I, there's a photo of this floating around somewhere, but I hugged the inside of the first turn and I think Ricky like drifted a little bit and I, I held it tight, held it tight and held it tight around the, the next turn. And that corner was leading into the whoop section. And I, I, like I told you, I had that mindset that I can't crash into whoops. I just, I, I can handle it no matter what. And so coming off like way further inside than what I'd normally, you know, would, I just, I didn't have the momentum and I, I went for it and there were big whoops and I made it like two, two, three, four whoops in and my front end dropped and I just ended my brains out in front of, you know, the whole pack and I uh, got run over and the whole nine. And after that, I, I lost a little bit of whoop confidence, but, uh, but yeah, it was always whoops and dragon ba- dragon's backs that were, you know, the thing that that I thought set me apart a little bit. I I wasn't a jumper, you know. I I wasn't the first guy to do the rhythm sections ever. I was uh, one of the you know one of the last guys to do them, and that was definitely something that hindered me. Was it just it took me too long to get the rhythms down? But the whoops, I had them I had them handled, and I always like to think, you know, I I tried to use my use my head a little bit more on the starts and really position myself. Cause I wasn't good out of the gate for whatever reason. I, I went through streaks every once in a while where I'd get on a hot streak, but normally I just, you know, whether it was technique or bike or what, um, or confidence, maybe I didn't get out of the gate real strong. So I would always kind of try to, you know, watch the starts and be calculating about where I lined up and, I mean, there are several times where you could see, you know, main events where I'd come into it like 10th and I'd come out like second or third because I just timed that gap and I'd shoot underneath and, and hold it real tight in the first turn. So that was, I thought, a strong point of mine. There you go. Well, uh, it, it, it served you well and uh, not surprised that uh, after a get off like that, you would uh, be a, a tad gun shy to uh, to just go uh, set sail in those things. Uh, a lot of times, like for those who haven't seen a, uh, a real stadium set of whoops uh, from the from the stands. They, they look gnarly. On TV, uh, there's certain angles where they can look impressive. But uh, until you walk on track walk and you're literally looking at uh, like a set of whoops, each one are almost like 10 feet from one to the other, and they're about two or three feet uh, uh, tall, each each one of them. And uh, there's there's some low spots, there's some high spots, and uh, you guys got to dance across the top of them. Uh, I really got, like, got developed a, a, a huge respect for what you guys do. This time last year when uh, I went to Anaheim, too, got to do track walk, and uh, 
whether it be standing on the face of a triple or standing uh, at the uh, the edge of the whoops, like you, you guys are nuts, by the way. <laughs> well, this is one of those things when you grow up doing it, you know, I mean, it's just second nature. Um, you, yeah. you start to overthink it and, and you psych yourself out. You just, you know, when you're looking at an obstacle, I mean, you can't, you can't stand there and obsess over it. You won't jump it if you do that. You know, if you, you just have to pull the trigger and, and have uh, confidence in your own ability that you're going to, you're going to, you know, be able to judge the distance and time it correctly. And, you know, or whoops that you're going to, you know, plane your bike out and, and touch the top of each one. So it's definitely a lot more mechanically to, to whoops. And, and I think, you know, you see that now with guys with riding coaches and using video and breaking things down and breaking down technique because it, it is, te- you know, it's technique. It's a technique that you have to practice and practice and practice and perfect. And, and I'm um, just like, you know, hitting a baseball or, or catching a football, you know, or, or blocking or whatever it is. I mean, there's, there's ways to do it the right way and there's ways to do it where you get yourself in trouble. So, um, just becoming like a, a student of, of, uh, the mechanics of the sport will really help a lot of the younger guys to develop those skills. Absolutely. And, uh, you, you'd mentioned that you're, uh, you, you overthink things and you kind of, uh, dwell over things. And uh, I totally connect with that. Um, in fact, uh, like to this day, I don't think there's a week that goes by that I don't, uh, uh think about, uh, a particular, my, my last, uh, uh, um, competition in freestyle skiing uh, my last jump as a competitor it was there wasn't any competitions after this or at least not any big ones uh the decision was to do a uh, a 1080 first one ever for me and uh and just try it to see if i could better my score or try and uh, do a trick that i uh, just just perfect a trick that i had already done i chickened out did a 720 and uh i've been kicking myself since 2007 is there anything that uh that you feel like that for Um, you know, that race in Dallas, I like, I'd say that's just one thing where I just, I wish I would have just laid it all on the line because, you know, I never did get a podium. You know, I, I won Montreal Supercross and I've won, you know, a lot of overseas Supercross events, but, you know, I never podiumed in AMA Supercross. I was fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and every other place that you could be, but never on the podium. Um, and so, that was an opportunity for me to do it. I mean, in Houston, I think in 2003 or four, um, where I was, I think fifth, you know, that was another one where just wish I could have capitalized on some opportunities. And then there was one race in particular in, in Utah in Salt Lake city where again, it was one of the only times like my lap times were never, my strong suit. I mean, qualifying, you know, when they started doing the timed qualifiers, I just, I got slow. I I was started slow and I got faster as the day went on. So by the time we got to the main, I was, I was in there, but for whatever reason, this day in particular, I was walking the track. Like I told you before, I, I wasn't one to pull the trigger on rhythm sections, but I was feeling really, you know, out of character that day. And and I pulled the trigger on this rhythm section and I jumped it a different way than anybody had. And it wasn't even that I could jump it that way once it came to the races because they changed the track, but it was just kind of like a precursor for where I was at mentally that day. And all throughout the day I was fast. I mean, I think I crashed in the heat, but I battled with Ezra Lusk in the, 
in the semi for the win. Um, and then in the main event, I was riding like just with my brain off and my throttle hand on. And I ended up finishing sixth, which is a respectable finish. But when I look at my, um, my lap times from that night, you know, I could have been on the podium that night and I, and I should have been, but I, I just didn't have the mental, you know, the mental fortitude and, and strength to, to like really believe that and go for it in that first turn and just lay it on the line when I needed to. And so, um, I regret not getting on the podium, you know, and getting to experience that feeling. But, uh, you know, I did in other countries, but it's just, it's not the same. I wanted to do it here. So. Yeah. You wanted to be, uh, standing among, uh, Ricky Carmichael, Chad Reed, James Stewart, uh, looking them in the eye and say, we're, 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 we're on this, uh, this podium together. But, uh, um, even though you didn't get to have that opportunity, uh, getting like, like Salt Lake sixth place between, uh, Sean Hamblin ahead of guys like, uh, Tim Ferry, Heath Voss, uh, Larry Ward, um, like on the same night that, uh, Jason Thomas got 14th, uh, you're deep, deep inside the top, uh, top, top 10. So, uh, like, Honestly, uh, I, I know that uh, there's probably some things that you, you, you wish you wouldn't be able to kind of seize the moment more, but uh, uh, tough to uh, tough to not fall in love with uh, the, the career that you had, man. Yeah, no, it was all good, and, you know, it's all experience, and, you know, I use all of those things in my daily life now, and I use to try and teach lessons to my children. That my older two kids really don't have much interest in racing at all. They, they like dirt bikes and they want to, you know, cruise around in the desert a little bit. But I worry about uh, Declan, who's my four-year-old right now. He's kind of like a like a cross between, I think Danny Nappy said, like Mike Healy and, and Jean-Michel Bale. He's like oh, really no. good technically, but he's just, you know, I mean, so, I mean, the kid's like a phenomenal athlete at four years old. So, and he really wants to do a little bit on it, you know, I want to do it, you know, push them into something like, you know, that has a little bit more of a, a reward versus some risk and maybe, you know, something that could like encourage him to go to college, but he's going to do what he's going to do. And I'm going to support whatever it is that he wants to do. So, uh, I think I've got, I've got some trouble coming up though. So I'm going to be back out to add it to track more than, more than what I anticipate. So. Fair enough. Well, uh, at one point, uh, I remember an interview with uh, with with uh, Tim Ferry back in I think it was 2008, and he was saying, "No way am I being a moto dad. It's not happening." And uh, we we come to 2016, knowing that uh, Evan Ferry is uh, is on the inside track to uh, most likely holding down a uh, a team green ride and uh, following in the footsteps of his freckled father, uh, and uh, that's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, it is. I mean, and it, you know, it, there's such an internal struggle, and I'm sure Tim has it, you know, still, and I have it. It's like when you've lived this life and you know the, you know, you've had friends pass away and you've had friends that you know are in wheelchairs and you've yourself been, you know, in strange foreign countries in hospital beds with, you know, doctors that you can't communicate with. It's it's not something that you hope that your child would ever really want to do, you know, but for whatever yeah. reason, we're ill in the head and, you know, we wanted to do it and thought it was worth it, you know? So it's, it's like this, 
struggle. You know, yeah. you love it, you hate it, but it's part of you, and and you know, sometimes maybe the best part of you. You know, so it's, it's yeah, a, no, I, it's a struggle. I, I totally totally connect with that. I know uh, between motocross, uh, hockey, and football, I've probably sustained anywhere from eight to twelve decent concussions. And, uh, but along the way, um, uh, unlimited amount of, uh, of, of great times, memories and, and times when I, I just, uh, I can't replicate that feeling doing anything else. And I guess that's why I still do, uh, uh, all three and, um, to, 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 uh, rob my, 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 uh, like one day I'm going to probably have kids and to, and to take that, take that from and, and say, you're going to read a book is, uh, um, a bit unfair. Yeah, I mean, you got to let them be who they are. You know, some kids, yeah. Want to do other things, but um, I think just uh, giving kids the opportunity to do whatever they want to do. All, I mean, as a parent, that's you know what you you strive to be able to do financially, and and if they do choose something, you know, you want to have knowledge to guide them in the right direction too, whether it's you know something like uh, motocross or, you know, something like, you know, doing robotics or something. I mean, you, you want to be able to help them along the way. And because everybody's different, you know, I mean, I have four children and all four of them are, you know, completely different personalities. And, and uh, like I said, I've got myself a four-year-old kid, but like, it's just ridiculous. He's like hanging on monster girls and grabbing boobs. And, and I mean, he's just like this, he's like a frat boy, literally he's a four year old frat boy. So <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with him, but, uh, you know, and then I've got my, my high fives son, probably. Right. Probably. But, uh, my oldest son is the polar opposite. You know, he's like geeking out, reading books. And you know, I mean, he's like going to be, you get what you, you, you know, I mean, I love them both for for who they are. So it's it's cool being a dad. For me, I mean, there's just no better feeling. You know, of, I love my racing career, but like just knowing that you know those kids' lives are my responsibility has helped a lot of like my identity that that I can turn off when I was you know, when I was racing because oh, nobody cares, you know, nobody really, you know, there's a few people I know that are like, oh yeah, man, you dirt bikes, that's cool, you know, really good. And I'm, you know, I was all right. But um, there's just, you know, you go from being, I guess, like quote unquote somebody, you know, a person and, you know, people are writing you emails and telling you how you've affected them and blah, blah, blah to, you know, crickets. And um, so, competitively I miss that you know I miss the racing part like having that one thing every Saturday was like a new test of what I did during the week where now the work weeks like you know every day is kind of the same I mean ultimately you know in a construction project you know when you're complete when you complete it you turn it over to the owner you know that's a pretty already you know we've completed a 240 million dollar project here in Phoenix and you know, opened up on March 19th, and everyone, you know, Phoenix was happy, and, and every, you know, people are using it. So, you know, I get a little 
out of that. It's, it's just a clear test of how you did during the to uh, Santa Clara this weekend. You'll have uh, one student, not two, with uh, Cole Thompson taking a digger this weekend. And uh, But uh, talking with uh, with Zach uh, Commons yesterday, a uh, great kid, expe- uh, um, extremely well-spoken. And uh, I, I got to imagine that he does a very good job of doing his best impression of a sponge when it comes to uh, learning from a guy like yourself because uh, I think that... Um, there's there's a lot of things that uh, that you you dealt with and 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 learned from that uh, if you could pass that on to him he would be uh, happy to to have uh, had you learn some from things that he won't have to. Yeah, Zach's a great student. He's just a great person, and um, yeah. I think anybody that that gets to know him uh, will see that pretty much right away. He's just very genuine and and uh, really articulate and and just across the board, a good, just a good human being. So, um, I wouldn't do it for, uh, you know, I wouldn't do it for someone that wasn't, wasn't pumped on, you know, um, for like a, I, I don't know. I told uh, him that you said he's zesty. What's that? I told him that you said that he has zest. He has zest. He has a zest for life. Yes. Yeah, he does. He does. Well, he's inspiring. He's an, someone that, um, you know, you want to, you want to hit your, your wagon to that horse. He's, he's just, yeah. you know, I mean, whether or not he's successful at racing, it's really beside the point, you know, I mean, uh, he's a good human being and, and, um, I've run across, you know, several good human beings in the sport and a lot of not so good ones. And so when you meet a kid like Zach, it's just really refreshing to know that, you know, there's people out there that, that really do their best to to just live their life and you know in a way that that they're proud of and and do right by people so i um yeah. i have nothing but very very good things to say about about zach and i i hope that he does you know find success in racing i think he's got the building blocks there you just gotta stay healthy and you know that's a challenge down for all of us yeah, that it is. Honestly, no. Uh, um, like uh, Zach Commons is by far one of the best interviews I've ever done. The kid is uh, is way too easy to talk to. Um, you, you throw him one idea, and he and he he'll talk for the the just the right amount of time. And he's extremely well spoken and upbeat, and uh, the kind of guy that uh, if I could have him on my show every week, I'd do it because, uh, like you said, he's just fun to be around, fun to talk to, and. Um, like the kind of guy you want to see do well because uh, um, 
there's there's uh there's there he's he's a rare breed. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll we'll see. I think he's gonna finish off these last couple rounds strong, and you know I, I'd love to give him an opportunity to to help him along his way, you know, along the path, and do what I can for him. So ultimately, it's up to him. You know, it's, it's how much you put into it and what kind of decisions you make. You know, it's just uh, it is a brutal sport, isn't it? I mean, oh, it yeah. is not for not for you know the weak and. You got to be willing to take your licks and come back. And I think, uh, you know, very, very few people can get to that level. And um, as we you know, we've seen the, you know, with Philip Poto and and Dungey and you know Jeremy McGrath and Ricky Carmichael. I mean, you you get those guys that just have that recipe and they've got it, you know, figured out. But then, I mean, you look at Philip Poto. As soon as his heart was kind of not in it anymore when he went to Europe, I mean couple of bad little things, you know, the bike maybe not being set up right. And I mean, you take arguably the best guy in the world and, you know, he wasn't having too much fun over there. So but you got to have the right recipe, you know, from the bike to the mechanic, to the trainer, you know, to the riding coach and, and right down to, you know, your tire selection. Everything's got to be spot on. Otherwise, uh, it's going to be a little bit better. I couldn't agree more. Now, uh, so it, it sounds like, uh, and this is no April Fool's joke, that uh, Team Solitaire is coming back from full uh, for a full uh, schedule 2017 featuring Zach, Com- uh, Zach Commons. I would not say that, no. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> no, it, you know, I, I enjoy being around the sport, but yeah, there's definitely, um, there's no way that I would be able to do something on that level ever again. Um, mm-hmm. you know, with the family and, and things like that. But I, I do enjoy being around it, and I'm sure I'll be involved in on some level. And and um, you know, I'll always have the support staff when he needs it. So that's awesome, man. Um, so uh, one of the one things that I was always intrigued with, and like uh, what made me fall in love with the sport of motocross in general, was the uh, uh, the the Great Outdoors series of videos that uh, that. That were done, and uh, you were featured in in the very first one, I believe. Uh, and uh, you and your uh, your mechanic uh, Cody. Uh, what was uh, what was that uh, relationship like between the two of you, and uh, how you kind of uh, uh, took on uh, the uh, the Goliath that is uh, the rest of the field as uh, as as a privateer and uh, and rider? Well, Cody was a great mechanic and a great great person. Um, I think we had, we had a lot of success together and, and he was good at building my confidence. I, do, I mean, I remember about, I'd never had someone that had like the ability to prep my bike to that level before. And it, it's crazy how much of a difference it makes. Like when you have your bike race prepped by somebody that really knows what they're doing, you know, how much better things flow and feel and, you know, it's all confidence. So if you're confident in your bike, you're confident in the guy that's working on it, you're confident in your, your program and yourself, your training, and, and things just come together. So for he and I, um, it was a really good relationship, and we had some great results. And, and I think, you know, I really want to see that. I, I mean, I think I've seen it once or twice, the great outdoors, like the original one, and, and a lot of people do um, mention it to me that it was like the first time, you know, they saw me and they talk about Cody who everybody referred to as fat as, and, uh, you know, it was, man, just, there was so many things back then that like, 
I'm just not sure, you know, and I'm sure some of them would, but, but like, once we got to the races that, I mean, I have never been, you know, above doing anything to the races, like taking back the trunk of cars or like, I mean, if I needed to ship a bike in a suitcase and try to carry as much of it on as I could, like I would do that. And I think in that video, we were in the MX culture van. Um, yeah. We, you know, it was Toyota Premia basically, and we had the bike basically apart in the back. It was, you know, Roger Larson, who, uh, you know, Roger is uh, like the brand manager for seven. It was just do what we had to do. I mean, sleeping on the floors of people's hotel rooms, you know, we just, we just wanted to be there. I mean, we weren't making any money. We weren't getting any notoriety. We weren't, you know, partying with, you know, good looking women. It was, it was so just pure enjoyment of racing at, at like the most primal level. And, um, we'd do anything, you know, we would race Wednesday night. I mean, I, I remembered it, and this was a little bit later, I think it was like 99, I raced Lake Geneva, Wisconsin on Tuesday night. Lake County, hold on, it was Lake County on Tuesday night and Wednesday night. Lake Geneva on Thursday night. Practiced at Millville on Friday. Um, raced Millville on Sunday, and then I raced in Escanaba, Michigan on Monday night. And I probably, you know, pocketed I don't know, I'm going to say like eight or $9,000 cash, like in a shoebox, you know, under my back seat of my van in that <laughs> very short span of time. And, uh, I mean, it was like, it was, that was amazing for a 20 year old kid. You know, I felt like I was rich, but then it was feast or famine, you know, that I'd go like three months and I'd just be making just the AMA personally because they, there there was a time when they were having those races. And then once that time was, was done, you know, or if the races weren't in the Midwest where, where there was some good purses then you were kind of shit out of luck. Yeah, no doubt. No, it's, uh, um, it is like the, when you gotta make hay while the sun shines and, uh, it, it's, uh, um, not uncommon even to this day to hear about guys who race a national on a Saturday and then race home to, a, a one of their local races. I know, uh, Chris Howell from, uh, uh, Washington, Spokane, Washington's done that exact thing where he just drops everything after a, at a after a, a national and drives right back to a to, uh, to his hometown race to uh, to try and and see if he can make uh, to maximize his dollars every single weekend. Um, uh, as much as motocross changes, as much as it also stays the same. Yeah, and it's it's that love of it's that love of the sport that you know that separates it. I mean, I think. There's just so many cool elements about about motocross, you know. It's like man and machine, like the ultimate. Because you know, open. The only thing that like even comes close, like open, but I mean, it's well, it's not. I mean, even you know, you see the movement, you see the bike, and then obviously all the obstacles and and the terrain. There's just there's nothing. If you do all these other things first, you know, I would never get to motor. Like, if I could push, you know, my kids into golf, like, golf is fun. 
can never replicate the exhilaration that you get, you know, pulling off, you know, like the first time you jump or, or just a big tabletop or, you know, you're taking your first race to win. Like, that's, there's no feeling that, that you can get from other sports that replicate it because it's, it's just like, it's So, no, I, 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 to- yeah, I, I totally agree. And there's, uh, there's, there's nothing quite like it. That's why we continue to do it. Uh, several concussions, double surgery, shoulders, knees, ankles, wrists, uh, and I'm just talking on my side, let alone yours. Uh, continue to, uh, to just love this, uh, the sport, and uh, it, it's amazing. I just uh, can't get enough of it. Yeah, for sure. So, and and you know, I think. Looking back to, I mean, opportunities that we've that I was able to give other members was really cool too with Team Solfair and with banks and things like that. I know you, you touched on that, and um, um, uh, the first time I bought that rig, I mean, it was like fate for Team Solfair. Like everything just just fell into line. I mean, I was uh, talking to my buddy Danny Happy. I don't remember even how I had to buy the first rig. I mean, the rig was like forty thousand dollars. It was. I didn't have forty thousand dollars in my pocket, so I don't know how I even got the somebody to loan me some money to buy that first truck, and it just happened to be at the exit to, uh, to exit. The so, um, just the way that whole thing materialized, it was it was cool, and right people came to. You're, you're breaking up a bit there. Oh, my breaking up. Sorry, can you hear? Me? Uh, uh, move, move to a slightly better spot. Okay. Verizon well, too. Is that any better? That's better right there. Uh, sorry okay. about that. Yeah. No. Um, no. It's uh, to put, pull all those strings and put everything together on top of uh, trying to. Uh, perform at the highest level uh and honestly taking on a lot of things that would probably keep you up at night that uh the rest of your competition wasn't having to worry about and still at that time putting in some of your best rides um as much as uh, the last time we talked you'd mentioned uh to you kind of downgraded or uh uh your um intestinal fortitude or your mental fortitude uh take some serious um mental calmness to be able to compete uh, and, and put some of those uh, those things out of your mind, knowing that uh, there's probably a few events where uh, you're, you're probably thinking to yourself, if I don't do good in this main event, um, we might not be at the next race. Yeah, and I was always, the one thing about racing that always also appealed to me was the fact that when when the race started, nothing mattered, nothing. Like You just don't have time to have those thoughts in your head. Sure, yeah. during practice, you know, you have, you're thinking about stuff and, you know, um, and things might be coming into play. But when you're out there, you know, at a 30-minute, you know, plus two-lap race at Red Bud, you know, that that's over an hour, you know, on that day that your mind's blank except for trying to get to the front, you know, trying to finish out strong, whatever whatever it is. So that, that was always very appealing. And I was always able to separate those things for the most part. And I know, um, in retrospect, you know, I, I probably 
could have had a little bit better um, results without some of the the other things I took on. But but that was you know that was a great learning experience for me. It was a, it was great learning about business and and marketing and I mean all the the different things that we were able to do along the way, the skill sets that I picked up and the people we affected and and just putting together a cool program. I mean it's kind of like I look at business owners now and I mean whether you succeed or fail like, man, you put yourself out there, you know, and that, that's a, that's a noble thing to do in a a world that, you know, you can, you can lay up, you can take the easy way and just, you know, get a, you know, fall into something that, that doesn't, you know, you don't have to put in the extra time and you don't have the late nights and you don't have to risk your own money or whatever it is. But, you know, I mean, it's a choice that I made and, and I'm glad that, at that point in my life, I was able to do it. And, you know, I mean, I couldn't really do it now because there's just too many people depending on me. You know, everything sort of lined up. I didn't have kids. I didn't really have a, you know, I wasn't married. I, I didn't have a house payment that I needed to, you know, if I, if I had to sleep in that truck that I bought, I was going to sleep in that truck that I bought. There was like, nobody could tell me no at that point because there was just no good reason why I couldn't do it myself you know, and put that program together. And I uh, had a great time doing it, made a lot of mistakes, made a lot of good choices too along the way and aligned with some really good people. But, uh, you know, ultimately I said, like I, I mentioned, I, I get a lot of satisfaction out of having sent many people through the program and onto other programs, um, onto either better rides or, you know, better jobs. And, uh, it's cool. And it's cool that, you know, people still know the name team solitaire and it means something to them and, and it affected them in some positive way. So I'm proud yeah, of that. I, I, I think that that's, uh, it, it definitely left its mark. And, uh, like we said on the last podcast ahead of its time, um, grabbing hold of, of the internet and, uh, interacting with fans long before, uh, anybody else, uh, took, took the time to do so. It, it kind of, uh, um, uh, you said pioneers, if you will. Yeah, well, we kind of knew, you know, I, I knew what I could capitalize on. And it wasn't winning races, obviously. You know, I wasn't going to get the press that way. I had to get it a different way. So I had to become, I had to be accessible. You know, I had to be relatable. Because people can't, re- I mean, I guess now they can a little bit more, but people can't relate to a chat read. I mean, he's like, you know, this, I don't know, um, just otherworldly kind of, kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he's just celebrity that you just can't, uh, he's unaccessible. I mean, you know, he's got an attitude about, you know, hanging. I mean, you know, it's different now, but back then, I mean, he was, he was kind of a prick, you know? And so I knew that I had to. I had to be really approachable and I had to talk to everybody because those were the people that were, you know, essentially funding the program, if you will, just by having the numbers, you know, having the fans and and amassing that, that crowd. So I just, I I saw an opportunity and, and that's the, the route that we, we chose to go. 
What was your strangest fan uh, encounter or uh, exchange uh, over the uh, the course of your uh, um, career? Oh God, there's so many weird ones. Um, <laughs> you know, a lot of them involved women and alcohol, but um, I would say like one thing. One thing that was really profound was I had a truck driver who. Prior to being the truck driver for the team, he was just a, a fan, and and I mean, he literally tattooed the solitaire logo on his leg. I just, you know, I, mean, I invented it. I, you know, like Mark Bunchard designed it, but you know, that was my deal, and I didn't even feel like that kind of connection to it, right? So that was a pretty, pretty cool thing to see that, like how into it people people got. But I mean, as far as like. You know, I guess the stories that you're looking for, or you know, that just propositioned at the races and things of that nature. I mean, it happened a lot, but I was, I guess, like when I realized it, we lived in this alternate universe was uh, when I was probably 18, 19 years old. I was at Anaheim, and. Uh, I remember I hadn't really done that well. You know, I was walking back to the pits after the 125 main. I mean, you got to remember, I'm like, you know, in high school or Because all my friends, you know, find a girl that's got older brothers because 
grows up with with older brothers around, you know, that she's not into the normally not into the you know the girly stuff. And she's out riding bicycles and working on cars, and you know, she appreciates those things. And so I kind of hit the jackpot on that. Like, I think I was sold when I talked to her, and she was like, she was cleaning the carbs on her street bike. And I'm like, oh my god, marry me, you know? So I'm like, this is a a girl that's not going to ask me to do every little you know thing for her. She can. If she's in trouble, she can figure, you know, she can figure it out a little bit on her own. And I'm always there to support her and obviously help her when she needs it. But she, uh, she contributes much more to the relationship, I'm sure, than I do. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, love after a, a carb job—that's uh, you don't hear that too often, right? But I mean, I mean, these are like practical everyday things. These aren't things that you think about when you're, you know, 16 thinking about a girl. Like, you know, you're just you're worried about obviously like you want her to look like a supermodel or whatever. And I mean, I think my wife's the most beautiful person, you know, physically as well, but I mean, she's just, you know, she's got like these skills that, you know, I mean, she has her own career and she has all these, you know, other things that she can do. I mean, it's like, I joke about it with some of my friends, like everything that I'm pretty good at, she kicks my ass at. It's, it's like, it's kind of maddening. You know, I'm a pretty good designer. She's better. Um, a pretty good musician. She's better. I'm a pretty good artist. She's better. The only thing I have is I'm better at riding a dirt bike, but that's pretty much it. So, yeah. Wow. Uh, well, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing to see that, uh, that she hasn't yet uh, figured out a way to go faster than you on a dirt bike. And, uh, but, uh, by some of those videos that you, uh, you were part of, uh, I believe in 2009, uh, on, on YouTube, uh, she probably know not now knows how to ride motocross, uh, do a whip and a heel clicker. Those were some great videos. I loved reading the comments on them. That was like especially fun. Um, I got to read. Yeah, you know, I don't even know how that came about. And a guy just called me out of the blue and asked me if I'd do some of these things. And, you know, I paid a little bit of money. So I'm like, yeah, you know, okay. And uh, so, yeah, like an afternoon's worth of work going to do some whips and trying to explain how, you know, even though there's like 10 different ways that you can whip. And most of them, if you don't have extensive experience, will end up with you in the hospital. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, this definitely got me thinking because how, you know, and, and unless you're teaching, unless you're a motocross coach and you're breaking these things down, you know, it's hard to explain how to do, uh, how to ride whoops, how to, you know, properly jump or do a start or train or whatever it is. But, you know, and I've always, I get several times in my life, I started writing a book about it, you know, like starting to break down skills. But I always come back to the same thing that, I just, I, I really truly don't believe there's enough people in motocross to like support, you know, something like that. I just like every time that I try to do something, you know, that's solely based on moto, it, it just, there's no, it's not like you're not casting a wide enough net. You know what I mean? So it's just, a, it's a small industry, tight knit industry. It's awesome. But I just, I wouldn't want to, depend on it for for my financial you know security again 
Well, no doubt. Like when, when we're in it, we 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 know about all the races. We we follow it. We we consume ourselves with uh, all the information. So we think that it's it's this giant thing. And uh, the reality is, is that if you walk up to the majority of the people just walking in and around town, uh, you ask them if they think uh, if they know what motocross is, if they have any idea about it, uh, they'll shake their head no or uh, think that it's not a sport or something like that. Uh, they, they don't know who Ricky Carmichael is, uh, much less uh, Brad Gebhardt or, uh, or Ryan Clark. But uh, it's the it's the sport we love and we can't get enough of it yeah it's un, it's unfortunate that it isn't but you know it's just it costs too much money you know yeah. i mean as a, as a father of four i mean it's a huge investment for me just to even with all the connections i have it's still expensive you know i i even just bring them to the track if we want to go to the track for a day it's you know 80 bucks for us to get in and uh yeah it's unfortunate, you know, but that's just the reality of it. And, and, and maybe that's one of the things that, you know, draws us to it is it's not for everyone, you know, everyone can't do it. It's a very a select, you know, few people and, and, um, you know, it's kind of like our little secret society or something. So we, we enjoy it, you know, and it's, uh, it's a, like I said, so many positive things about it, but it's, it, that inhibits it from, probably more mainstream popularity. Definitely. Well, like uh, if, if you like basketball, all you need is uh, a, a circle to throw in a ball into. And uh, you can honestly even do that by yourself. So uh, you don't even need a team to do so. You don't even need to buy the shoes. Um, and uh, yeah, shorts are optional as well. Uh, for, for motocross, you need a bike, you need a place to ride it. And uh, if you want to be competitive, you need other people to be able to do the same thing. Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, it's um, it's not for everyone, obviously, but it's uh, nonetheless, it's fantastic, and it's, obviously, we love it. So we uh, we spend all our money to do it. Fair enough. Now, uh, uh last couple questions before I let you go. Um, best bikes you ever rode. Best bikes you ever had on Team Solitaire. Best bikes. Period. I'm gonna say like 2008. Uh, Honda 450 uh, before they switched, you know, to the new frame and engine. I just, I think that bike was powerful. It turned well enough and it was developed, you know, from the, what, 05 on chassis. Like we just had so much, so much data to go on that we, we just had it set up the best. And then I think once we, once they switched to the, the 09 chassis, we chased our tails there for a couple of years with it. So probably the 08 CRF 450. I think uh, I think Chad Reed still has one of those in his garage. Oh, really? Yeah, no, I, I'm fairly certain I've heard many times that he goes back to that thing looking for like a certain feel, and he's like, "Yep, yeah, it's it's that. Why? How can we replicate that?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was a good it was a good bike. Is a you know that engine that power plant was just it's just so like throaty and it, it just pulled and pulled and pulled and real reliable. So good bike, uh, good bike. Best, uh, best teammate or best hire you ever made on, on team solitaire. Uh, definitely Bob Canary. Um, just a, another guy that's like a good, happy, positive person all the time. Bob. Um, yeah, I'd wake up, and he'd be like out front raking my leaves. Like, he, you know, he stayed team solitary. Like our race shop was my garage. 
you know, our test track was my backyard. And so, you know, Bob would, would stay with us for a couple months and, and, um, yeah, like, I mean, he'd just be like doing our dishes, you know, out front, just like he just had to do something. He had to be constantly in motion and he'd wake up early and, and, uh, just kick, kick ass, like kick life's ass basically, you know, and he's just positive and happy. Like I still talk about him with my kids because he always had this thing like, you know, and, and I mean, he wasn't at all, I don't know if you know Bob at all, but, um, nicest dude in the world. But when he's on the track, like he's just a totally different person. Right. And he'd always talk about like, Oh, I'm going to smash that guy. I'm going to smash that guy in that turn, man. That guy, you know, he did this to me or whatever. Next time I get behind him, man, I'm smashing that guy. So like my kid, Everett and Audrey, my older two were really young. I mean, they were like, you know, two and four years old or whatever when, when Bob was around. And so I'd always tell him that like Bob Canary says he's going to smash you. And uh, they just like get a kick out of it, you know? So <laughs> we like launch into Bob Canary voice. So that was a, a really good one. And I'll go the other way too. And this isn't like, this is all just in fun, but I remember I hired Daniel Blair one year um, and he came to train in Arizona with me. And so like the one thing about Daniel is, you know, he's one of those guys, again, super talented, like really, really talented, but, but yeah. didn't really have the work ethic at that point. And, you know, maybe a little bit later on, I think he developed it, but he was still pretty young. And so I'd make him go run. And so after like a week of him running, I found out that he would, you know, he would actually just like run for a little ways away and then he'd walk to the pizza place and go get some pizza and then he'd like run back. Uh, so anyway, needless to say, it didn't end up working out and he didn't end up riding for team solitaire. That was like his trial. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, he just, he looks, he looks extra tired from having just eaten pizza and then running immediately. So, uh, it really looked yeah. like he was putting in the work. Yeah, absolutely. That cheese kind of glistening on his skin, the cheese grease. So. Yeah. Oh man, that's, that's too much. Um, best mechanic you ever had minus, uh, Cody. Um, well, I didn't have a lot of mechanics, so, um, I, I mean, Jesse Black was my mechanic. I mean, he's one of my lifelong friends. And, you know, we went through a lot together. Um, you know, we both had a lot of personal problems at certain times. Um, Jesse had some demons that he was fighting. And, and um, you know, we helped each other through a lot of that stuff. So, I mean the guy is a, an amazing mechanic, you know, his knowledge is like second to none. Um, we had our struggles too. I think we both did, but, um, definitely, you know, definitely my, I mean, he's my mechanic, man. I'm like, I'm married to him. So I definitely go with Jesse on that one. There you go. Um, best national uh, track that you ever like your favorite uh, outdoor track that uh, you had to visit every single year? Definitely Millville. Um, just, uh, I loved yeah. that place. I loved uh, the facility, the track. The only thing I didn't like about it is the first turn, just being a right-hander. But, yeah. um, I mean, I, I love, yeah, it's just such right a Right-hand cool and wide open don't, don't really uh, work out that well. Yeah, just, uh, 
yeah, that first turn is a little sketch, but aside from that, I mean, that place is like, it's just a, it's like motocross heaven, you know? And the one thing I really liked about it was that you always knew that like uh, some tracks you get in to a rhythm and, and there's just, if you're going close to the same speed as somebody, there's just not the opportunity to pass them. But you know what, Millville, every lap when you hit the the sand whoops, if you're willing to lay it on the line, you can make it happen, you know? Yeah. Um, there's those two straightaways of, you know, of the sand whoops there in the back that, like, you just got to be close enough and you go, you know, balls of the wall and you make it, make it through those things and you make the pass and then you move on and then the next lap you've got another chance with the next guy. So I liked that there was a, some of the track is kind of one line, but then you always have that section where, you know, all right, I just got to set them up for this section. So that, that makes it, it gives you hope. Like some of the tracks, you just, you get kind of stuck behind people, you know, it's a little bit hard to pass them. Well, I, I've literally, I've been to Millville quite a few times and I've literally seen uh, guys change their best lap time of the day by two or possibly two or three seconds based on uh, an incredible run through those things. Uh, and that can be, uh, if you can consistently do that, that's uh, that, that can be a huge ace in the hole. And uh, how us guys were able to, A, either rip through a pack, or uh, there's a couple of times when, especially in 03, when uh, when Ricky uh, walked away from everyone beating, uh, winning both motos by 42 seconds. Right. And that was where, in that mud race, that's where he lapped at even second place, didn't he? Yeah, that was uh, that was where he beat, uh, lapped second place. Where did uh, where did you fall in that one? Uh, were you were you in that one? I was Spring in that Creek, one. Eleventh, eleventh overall. 11th I think overall. I was what six second bottom. Uh, seventh. You went sixteen seven uh, for uh, to 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 land just behind uh, Chad Reed in uh, outside the top ten, but ahead of uh, of Nick Nickway, who spectacularly went thirteen thirteen. How do you get consistent uh, moto finishes on a day like that? I don't know. I don't think the first moto was muddy. I think the first moto No, it was wasn't. Not. That's what I mean, though. Right. Like, he got yeah, 13th in dry and 13th in the mud. And he's won. He won his only national, I think, at Millville. Yeah, 1999. So, so but Nick... One of the Nick only races had... that uh, Ricky didn't win that year on 125. Yeah. Nick's awesome. I love Nick. He's another really good, funny guy that... Uh, I've had the you know the good good fortune of being being friends with for a long time. Yeah, actually, uh, like a similar similar career to your own, maybe a little bit more success on the high end, but and maybe more opportunities with good uh, with good equipment, but or better like the like factory equipment. But uh, a guy that uh, you no doubt uh, found yourself uh, racing around uh, throughout your career. Still there. Uh, like 97, 98, um, and, and even into a little bit later. I mean, I'd stay with him in Michigan and into with moniker me, his personal bodyguard for some yeah. reason, he had this idea that I was a really good fighter and it all stemmed from, uh, one wrestling match in his house with Todd Brown, who was, uh, a mechanic, I think Todd was, was Nick's mechanic at the time, and then later on he went on to a, a bunch of different um, different teams and things. But um, you know, I was still pretty young, and I, I don't know. It was, 
he and I were just screwing around and got into a wrestling match and I was pinning him pretty easy and, you know, throwing him around. So then every time Nick would get into a beef with people, cause I think like he started dating this girl that was, uh, Oh, a stripper we met at, uh, you know, we, we used to go to what we'd call hydration night. So, you know, yes. uh, on Thursday night before the nationals, we'd, we'd go to the strip club and, uh, and you know, it was a uh, full nude. So it was no alcohol. And, um, mm -hmm. So Nick was, cause Nick was dating this, this stripper. Well, I'll come to find out she had a, uh, you know, a jealous ex boyfriend or whatever, who was also a racer. So she was, a uh, you know, dating motocrossers apparently exclusively. And so the guy called him and Nick's like, man, I'll stick Ryan Clark on you. And I'm like, Hey man, what's the deal with that? I, you know, I think you, you have a, the wrong impression of me. I'm not, I, I'm a lover, not a fighter, man. So. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, uh, that's uh, uh, getting someone else to fight your battles uh, on something I didn't know about uh, Nick Way, but um, I, I see him in a new light now. Um, what uh, what was the, your best opportunity to be on factory equipment later on in your career? I know you mentioned uh, you had an opportunity with KTM, uh, but uh, was that there any time during the, your, your years with uh, Team Solitaire where uh, there was a factory team that came knocking for a fill-in ride that uh, you, you simply couldn't take? Um, I had a, you know, a few times I'd been approached, but I was, you know, I was under the impression at that point that it was just all a lot of talk and, and I, I wasn't willing to really explore them further because they always just said it always ended up just being, being top when I did. So, um, no, I mean, once I started team solitaire, I pretty much made my bed there. You know, I, I think it probably stopped some people from, you know, maybe exploring uh, me as an option. But, um, you know, that the guy that started that subway team <clears throat> at one point, he, you know, he called me and he's like, Hey, I've got home Depot. You know, they're going to give all this money, man. And we want to, you know, we're, I really want you on the team, you know, we'll be like $200,000 salary and all this stuff. And I'm just like, you know what, just, send me the contract, you know, and uh, I'll look at it. And, you know, it turned out that whole thing never materialized. And, you know, at that point, I, I was pretty established with, with my program. And, you know, even though I wasn't making, you know, ridiculous money, I was making good money. And I was, uh, I, I was the master of my own destiny. I could, mm -hmm. if I didn't want to run a, a certain pipe, I didn't have to. If I wanted to make a change, I could. So that freedom was you know, worth something as well. So I, uh, I just decided, you know, at that point, I'm just, just go down this path. And, you know, I was really hoping that team solitaire would be a long-term deal be beyond my racing career. I always right. thought that I would be able to continue running it when I stepped away from racing, but it's difficult because the selling point for team solitaire was me because they always knew that I would be there, you know, and, and I had that fo a, a pretty good following. So it's like, if I just went to him with another rider, you know, there was never that guarantee because, you know, I mean, you can get a, like a letter of intent from someone. And so it, it just, when the economy went and the money was much less available, you know, it wasn't $150,000 gear deals for, 
you know, for days. It just, uh, it became the type of economic climate that really only, a, you know, the top tier riders and top tier teams could could survive in. And I just didn't want to do it on a shoestring budget. I didn't really want to go backwards. So we focused on, we'd started a shop up as well called the Dirt Lab. And um, so I just began focusing on that and, and um, kind of shut Team Solitaire down for the most part. Fair enough. Well, uh, and, that, and that's what brought you to do what you're doing now. And uh, if if what if uh, on top of what you're doing uh, right now with, of course, raising a family, uh, being very successful with construction, uh, you decided to throw something on your plate like uh, writing a tell-all book about uh, the, the ins and outs of the sports of motocross. Uh, a, would you have to then uh, start wearing a bulletproof vest to the races, uh, or uh, uh, w- what would be in that book? You know, I don't know. I mean, it's difficult. I, you know, when, when you're racing and you, you see these people every weekend and, you know, there's like the political side of racing, you know, you, it's a tight knit community. You don't want to piss people off and you don't want to start beef, beef with people. I mean, but it's just this little microcosm of, of like arrogant, not and I'm making this like I, all people obviously are not like this. There are some great, genuine, awesome people in the sport, but there's a lot of really arrogant, you know, self-absorbed, uneducated people. I mean, that's what like this sport breeds because it doesn't value you don't value education. You know, you get all these kids that drop out of school or homeschool and they don't actually do it. They don't have social skills. They don't have any other career path. I mean, this is it. All eggs in this basket. And their parents are, half of them don't even want to be right, you know, don't even really enjoy it. They do it because their dads or moms living vicariously through them. So it just, I mean, it breeds this environment where you have all these riders that don't make it, right? I mean, because, I mean, let's face it, I mean, what, how many percent of these guys can actually make a living? Really, like, maybe top 10, 15, you know, 10 through 15 are, like, you know, making 60, 70 grand a year, you know, 5 through 10 are making, you know, 100 to 300, and then you've got the top guys that are making millions, right? But everybody else, like, what what are they supposed to do? So they just, they get a job as, like, a rep, you know, a um a marketing guy, you know, because they're buddies with them, but they don't really have the skills to do it, you know, and, and they're in this, this little bubble where they think they're really important and they think they're really good at their job and they think that everybody loves them. And, you know, it's just, that's not reality. So they just live in a, in an altered state of reality. So, I mean, I don't, dislike the people because of it. I just laugh at the situation because it's because it's laughable, you know? I mean, it, it, it truly is. It's really unfortunate that we can't figure out a way to put more value and more emphasis on, on getting an education and having some other career path post not making it at racing. Because, I mean, even, you know, people say, I made it, right? I mean, if you ask, like, Shit, I've had, 
most of my fans, when I talked to them, they thought I made millions of dollars a year. You know, I'd say at the most I made $200,000, you know, for a couple of, a year or two. It wasn't, and, and I mean, I had to get a job and by a lot of people's terms, you're I made a it, right? The, out of your pocket too. Like someone's yeah, I mean, salary all these... coming out of your salary. Yeah, well, there's, yeah, there's, I mean, a lot of expenses and stuff on top of it, you know, and you put, you reinvest in yourself because you believe in yourself, right? I mean, you're like, okay, well, if I hire that, that better trainer, if I, you know, build another track, if I do these things, then you know, I'm going to have more money next year. And then you end up breaking your arm in half or your leg or you blow out your knee or whatever. And, and you're back at square one. So I guess my point is just that, you know, I, I just, I wish parents would not do their children the disservice of like telling them like, Oh yeah, we're doing this. And we're, you know, you're, yeah, you get homeschool and, you know, do all these things to put the things that are truly important on the back burner for this like pipe dream of making millions of dollars racing when that's really all it is that, that kid's more than likely not going to make it. And then what are their career options except for, you know, they have some, some friends that they've made along the way and someone's going to give them a $35,000 a year job, you know, hawking goggles or whatever it is, you know? And so it's, I guess to circle back to your question, would everybody hate me? I mean, I don't think I'm, you know, I mean, you either love me or you don't, you either like me or you don't. I mean, I, I, I try not to sugarcoat it now too much because I mean, I don't really, in essence, I don't really need those, those people anymore. You know what I mean? You don't want to piss the wrong people off when you're in the sport because that guy, even though he's super unqualified, could be the guy that's dipping out checks for, you know, something that you might need the following year. So, um, I don't know. I just, I, I don't really, uh, it's, it's, it's not something I really care to talk about, I guess, too much as far as like names, you know, I mean, I've, I've got a lot of great friends and I dislike a lot of people within the sport. So I guess I'll just kind of leave it at that. Fair enough. Well, uh, uh, within the sport of motocross, there are uh, incredible relationships and, uh, and and a lot of emotion, and there's a lot of passion, and uh, that can uh, that can breed both uh, both great feelings, great relationships, and they can some some harsh ones. Uh, and um, but uh, at the end of the day, I think we can all say that uh, we love it. We we would do anything to continue to do it. And uh, uh, based on uh, the uh, the speed of uh, of your oldest, sounds like. Uh, you'll be uh, you'll be bringing yourself back to the track over and over again uh, as the as the years go on yeah you know I, I, probably gonna happen so i uh i'll embrace it you know when it does and uh and hopefully you know just have fun with it that's really that's why i started that's why we all we all do it it's just because like the the untainted part of of motocross is just the is just motocross it's just the the not the politics that involve you know uh trying to figure out how to make money doing it it's just going to the track you know hanging out with your friends going on road trips and enjoying you know a very challenging sport um learning about the maintenance of your bike and how to keep a machine properly running and how to take care of your stuff and how to make good decisions and and amassing all of these fantastic you know, life skills that that you can couple with, you know, a real education and a real career to to make you an asset down the line and really contribute something, you know, in your life. And uh, 
that's all I mean I hope for my children is just that they, they find something they're passionate about and and you know ride it out and, and really go after it and, and work hard so um, I mean to, in closing I guess just that was the best thing the best thing that I ever did you know was was sit there and daydream about being a champion and then chase it and chase it and chase it and not take no for an answer until I was just out of, you know, I, I took it as far as I possibly could. Um, and sure I made mistakes and, and sure, you know, I had some success, but, uh, it was all about the journey. It was all about, uh, the experiences and definitely wouldn't trade my life now for, you know, for any other way. And I think I was fortunate that, you know, I mentioned, I, I mean, I graduated high school. I graduated with a, a really high GPA. I didn't go to college. In hindsight, I definitely would have. I wish I would have, but I didn't. But in my situation, it didn't, it didn't hold me back. I think the life skills that I learned from not just the racing, but the team and the relationships and the travel the contacts, those, all those things together probably um, supplemented, you know, the skills that I would have been able to pick up in college and then some. So I'm happy with the path and uh, I'm happy to try to help other kids maybe not make some of the same mistakes, but I just, I really encourage people to not make motocross and supercross like number one education has to be number one um and that way you know it's not all or nothing it, it should never be all or nothing it should be you know we're gonna it, if you if your child wants to become the next ryan dungey great support them but don't don't cut the corners that that are gonna allow them to succeed in life beyond racing because there there is a life beyond racing Absolutely, there is, and uh, and you've certainly proven that and been, and been successful uh, on the other side of things. Um, Ryan, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I know we, we had planned on uh, on uh, an extra, I believe it was an extra 30 minutes. It turned out to be almost, almost. Was, were we on the phone for two hours? I'm not sure <laughs> and, what time it is. Uh, I, I think we might be, uh, but uh, regardless, uh, I loved it. There was a great conversation, and uh, I hope that you'll welcome uh, me my, my phone call again sometime because uh, I, I know you got a lot of great stories behind you and uh, a lot of good things to say about the sport. And uh, I really appreciate you giving me some time, and um, I, I really truly thank you. It's it's a it's a pleasure for me to have uh, to, to have uh, talked to you for for as long as I have over the last uh, a couple of days here and uh honestly uh, kind of a bucket list style thing for me because like i said um i was just a, a 14 year old kid uh watching motocross videos from from canada and uh and watching uh, seeing your passion uh for the sport when when uh, you were featured in those in those uh great outdoors videos uh really uh really kicked things off and and uh fueled uh my passion for this and uh here we are today Right on, man. Well, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening and for wanting to hear what I have to say. And um, yeah, definitely, definitely fun to recount some of the some of the memories. You bet, man. Uh, don't hang up just yet. But for podcast sake, we'll cut it off right there. Okay. Awesome.
Dude, that was... Thank you for listening to the Big MX Podcast, brought to you by X-Brand Goggles. Be sure to check out our archive for episodes you may have missed. Check out our website at BigMXRadio.com for more content.